drink and live well. These words were inscribed along the rim of a glass beaker put in a southwest Norwegian grave roughly at the time of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. The glass was obviously not a Scandinavian creation, and the inscription was Greek, but the message was one quite relatable to the proto-Norse speakers who acquired the glass deep beyond the lines of the civilized world, at least as far as the Romans and the Greeks were concerned. For even though drinking culture translates very well across cultures and ethnic groups, Scandinavia remained a barbarian periphery to continental society. Even in Scandinavia's Christian era, many European kingdoms were skeptical, alleging that their northern neighbors were still not too different from their barbaric ancestors, having conveniently forgotten their own barbarian past. The King Håkon Håkonsson, who was actually quite continental in disposition, once excused himself from a crusade, stating that Norwegians simply don't go very well with other peoples. Norse peoples had a reputation for being difficult, violent, anarchic. And then there was the pervasive ethnic stereotype that goes all the way back to the Greco-Roman stereotyping of barbarian culture, and perhaps the Germanic cultures above all, that they all had an immense thirst for liquor. This was subject to much caricature, but like all stereotypes, there seemed to be a kernel of truth to the matter. In the year of our Lord, 1241, the Norwegian Archbishop received a letter from Pope Gregory IX denouncing the absolutely unacceptable Norwegian practice of baptizing children in beer, stating that all previous examples of such beer baptisms were to be considered invalid and void. We lack any descriptions providing us with the number of just how many souls were sent to the alcohol-fueled expressway to damnation in the decades preceding this letter, but the Pope seems to have believed that beer baptisms were resorted to out of lack of holy water. We're actually given the impression that this is exactly what he was told. This does sound mighty peculiar to me. I mean, pardon my ignorance, but couldn't the priest just make more holy water at will? Certainly he had the necessary ritual know-how and authority to do so. And if you do need a priest to baptize a child, which you do, uh, then what the hell is the problem? It sounds like the biggest non-issue in the world. So maybe the archbishop was in fact full of shit. Because with all the mumbo jumbo going on in medieval Scandinavia, this seems like the least of the church's problems. The Norwegian clergy at the time was already harvesting ample helpings of critique for breaking their vows of celibacy and living in functional family units. It is not a stretch to assume that the Norwegian clergy was also bending backwards not to alienate the people, and in doing so, made themselves compliant to a quasi-heretical folk belief of beer as a sacred substance, which the centralized church, obviously, would never be willing to accept. My name is Erik Sturesund, and you're listening to the Brutnors Podcast. This is the second half of the role and history of bear in Norse culture.
Old Norse had several terms for the beverage we normally call beer. The term beer comes from Old English beer and has an Old Norse counterpart in the word bjor, which survives in Icelandic and Faroese, but not in Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish, though they may occasionally occur as archaisms in, say, romantic poetry, but in those instances the writer is more likely to refer to mead or mjöd, because mead, above all, is what we associate with Norse drinking culture in the modern mainstream mind, even though there is a lot of confusion among the general populace about what mead actually is. In Norway, where mead culture collapsed many generations ago due to the rise of distilled spirits and colonial access to cheap sugars, and also the wine trade, people often believe that mead was nothing but a rustic form of beer that the Vikings loved. The reality, of course, is that mead at the core is its own category of beverage, but we may call it honey wine. So the Old Norse tongue has three main terms for beer. There's ol, like English ale, and there's bjor, beer, and there's mungot. Mungot is a kind of beer lower in status than bjor and ol, and apparently also not imported from abroad, meaning that this was specifically a domestic product. It sometimes seems as if mungot was a quotidian, more daily-style drink that you would have along with a meal or something like that, like a table beer. That might suggest that mungot was expected to be weaker than ol and bjor. However, there are descriptions of mungot being quite strong, leading some people to conclude that mungot was quite oppositely a very strong beer. But I don't think that that fares very well with the notion that mungot was comparatively of a lower status than Ol and Bjor, especially given that more powerful beers are more expensive to produce, and often of a higher status as well. But there's no proper evidence to say that Mungot was always very weak or always very strong. We only know that it was valued as a basic necessity as far as alcoholic beverages go, and that it was not considered to be the most fancy of drinks. It's clear enough that Ol, that is to say ale, and Bjor, which is the same word as beer, that's a distinction that is quite important for reasons that will soon be apparent, it is clear that these two are used synonymously sometimes, that bjor can be regarded as an ale product. And the same applies to mungot. Mungot seems to be a form of ale, but mungot and bjor appear to be mutually distinct, and it's not entirely clear why. It could be a difference in ingredients or alcoholic strength, but if we step back just a few steps and look at the big picture, we might notice a few tantalizing clues. Damn near the entirety of Old Norse literature was produced in the High Medieval Period, at a time when German presence in Scandinavia was immense through the Hanseatic League, a massive trading organization that soon grew to become the main economic force in Northern Europe. The story of Scandinavia and the Hanseatic League is a story of love and hate. They secured a monopoly on the Norwegian stockfish trade and also held monopoly on the wine trade. The Hanseatic League imported such vast amounts of wine that it pushed the prices down to the point where the every man's drink of Mungot now was more expensive than the previously unimagined luxury of a jug of wine which elevated the Norwegian capital and port city of Bergen into drunken infamy for many generations to come, and prompted the crown to resort to protective legislation for the sake of public decency and secure the competitiveness of local wares. 
I don't know how much it helped though, because I remember from my days as a tour guide at the wharf in Bergen, that the theme that keeps recurring, whether you're talking about descriptions of Bergen in the 12th century or the 17th century, is that it's always a drunken shithole. On second thought, I think the kingdom actually tried to do damage control way before the Hanseatic League got their wine monopoly, because that didn't happen before the 1400s, and Norwegian independence was long gone by then. <laughs> but um, I'm making a lot of generalizations here, and it's of course, it's not all the Hanseatic League's fault, but we don't really have time to discuss the finer details of rampant alcoholism in Norwegian society in the 12th through 17th centuries or whatever. There's a lot of hilarious shenanigans I could get into there, but I'm gonna save that for another time, because I'm already off track. Let's just say that medieval Bergeners like to get their drink on, and there's even a Danish description that claims that the only thing that can unite the international community of Bergen is their love of getting hammered and forming these multinational bands of drunkards who go around vandalizing property and beating the shit out of people in the streets. I don't think we'll be seeing that at any maritime heritage events anytime soon. Anyway, I think I got my point across that there is a significant continental Germanic influence on medieval Nordic drinking culture. German traders probably exported vast amounts of beer to Scandinavia. And what do they call the beer down there? Well, they would have called it beer. See what I'm getting at? Beer. Bjor. Two lost brothers together at last. To make people sloshed. So what people tend to think when they're talking about Bjor and Mungot is that the main distinction is that Bjor would have been perhaps a foreign product or a product of a foreign style, while Mungot has the connotations of being a domestic institution. That means that what people in the 13th century considered Bjor might not be the same thing that they're talking about in 10th century skaldic poems. So we know that Bjor was beer in later times, but what was it originally? Could it have been a honey fortified beer like a, like a honey beer, a, a bracket as they call it? Or might it have been something else? We don't even know if it had anything to do with beer in the beginning, but I find it very likely that that was the case. If we go all the way back to Old English, for example, there are Old English to Latin glossaries that translate the Old English cognate beor as hydromelum, or mead, that is, honey wine. Alternately, it is translated as mulsum, which is sometimes translated as mead, or wine sweetened with honey. There's also an Old Norse glossary from 1192 that translates bjor as mulsum, which suggests that bjor was not, at the time, considered beer. Then again, we don't know what Latin mulsum meant to the Old Norse or the Anglo-Saxon scribes. They could be reaching for those terms by analogy to describe beverages that the Latin language lacked terms for, or at least were not part of their own Latin vocabulary. The glossing of bjor as hydromelum or mulsum does seem to confirm that bjor was a high-status drink, but it also adds an association with honey. It seems unlikely that Bjor was straight up mead because Old Norse and Old English both have terms for mead. In Old Norse it was mjod. They must have consciously not used that term. Then again, Latin molsum may be associated with the Old Norse beverage milska. Milska was a mixed beverage made out of mead and beer. It's two different fermented beverages mixed together like a cocktail. Conversely, Bjor could hypothetically be a beverage where several different sources of sugar are fermented together to create the beverage. In this case, malt and honey, but possibly other ingredients as well. 
Some have suggested that the Anglo-Saxon drink of beer was an old English term for cider, in part to explain the unthinkable absence of cider from old English sources. Of course, you need a press to produce cider, and there's not really any evidence for the consumption of cider in Iron Age Scandinavia. On the flip side, in Normandy, there's a dialect term, beer, I don't know how it's pronounced, that means cider. So there are things kind of like tugging in both directions here. As you can probably tell, all of this is jumbled by the fact that the meaning behind names of beverages fluctuate across the centuries, and it's not always clear why medieval scribes choose to translate certain terms, or if they were influenced by particular ideas about what the cognate terms meant in their own culture. This problem is in no way limited to the question of bjor. There are different terms for beverages in Germanic languages that have developed vastly different meanings. There are terms that mean brandy in German rural dialects, that mean vinegar in Gothic, for example. Okay, so words can only take us so far. What about the archaeological sources? Is there any evidence that can point us in either direction? Well, as it turns out, archaeological data seems vastly in favor of mixed ingredient beverages throughout the entirety of northern European prehistory. By analyzing the contents of containers and drinking vessels from Bronze and Iron Age burials, we are sometimes able to tell what exactly the contents of the long-since evaporated beverage consisted of. The sad matter of fact is that these analyses are rare, few, and far between, and I have myself read excavation notes whimpering as my eyes scanned over the descriptions of intact burial chambers containing vessels with some smelly gunk that the archaeologists simply poured out behind a rock somewhere before they took the pot in for restoration. Think about that next time you see one of those fancy Roman Iron Age drinking sets in the museum. But there are still a handful of examples of pollen and chemical analysis that allows us to draw fascinating conclusions about the drinking habits of pre-medieval Scandinavians. I only lament the fact that not more traces have been found from the Viking era and the medieval periods, respectively. The most famous example is, of course, the Egtved girl, who was born around Schwarzwald in Germany, but relocated to Denmark's Jutland Peninsula, probably to seal the deal of some supra-regional dynastic alliance, or getting married, as we might call it. But alas, it was not meant to last because she died, sometime between the age of 16 and 18, in the grand old year of 1357 BC. But good for us though, because she was buried in a grand oak coffin, in her finest skirt and cardigan, along with a birch bark bucket containing the residues of a fermented beverage, containing both malted wheat and honey, either lingonberries or cranberries, and some botanicals, chiefly bog myrtle, also known as sweet gale, my all-time favorite plant. <clears throat> the exact volume of the different ingredients will always elude us because we are left with just the residue, so we are talking about either a sweetened beer or a malted mead. It's not really clear what it was. Then, some 1400 years later, in the 1st century AD, the pattern persists with the so-called Ewelinge find. That is Ewelinge, not to be confused with Junglinge, which is probably what your father-in-law drinks when he's mowing the lawn. The burial site at Ewelinge in Denmark yielded several graves of high-standing aristocratic women and lots of artifacts tied to prestige drinking culture, imported Roman drinkware, drinking horns, all the trappings. 
It was in grave number four that they recovered the brown gold, at the bottom of a Roman bronze serving vessel. Evidently the remains of a fermented beverage. It even had visible remains of yeast sediment. This drink was made from malted barley and contained cones from the bog myrtle plant, as well as the chemical signature of berries, possibly cranberry and small amounts of lingonberry. It was not determined whether it also contained honey because pollen analysis was not undertaken, but Patrick McGovern, the Indiana Jones, if you will, of ancient drinks, later identified chemical components pointing towards the presence of grapes, pine resin, and juniper. If this is correct, the Yulinga beverage was probably a typical local Germanic beer mixed with imported Roman wine. Pine resin was often used to seal amphoras in the Greek or Roman world, so it could have come with the wine, or been used to seal a drinking vessel up here in Scandinavia, or flat out used to flavor the drink. Juniper is a well-known beer additive of later Nordic farmhouse brewing, as is the bog myrtle, which was also found in the Egtved girl's burial. Due to the way that these beverages elude clear definitions, Patrick McGovern has dubbed them Nordic Grog. And I know that Nordic Grog has been a subject of discussion on the show before, but it's nice to get into the depths of things, don't you agree? Now, it is highly likely that many of the pots and buckets and cauldrons from Scandinavian burials originally contained beverages that were either put down with the dead or consumed at the burial feast itself. All but a few of these containers were rinsed out before sent to restoration, oftentimes making future analysis impossible, which is infuriating, but can we blame them? Hmm, let's see. Pollen analysis was still in its infancy when the Egtved burial was excavated in 1921. It is somewhat of a cliche to say that early archaeologists were only interested in nice artifacts. It causes us to forget the technological and methodological limitations of their work. Many of them probably didn't even realize the true potential of their subject matter in terms of understanding the diet of our forebears. And don't forget the conditions that many archaeologists today have to endure. It is excusable, even though it is lamentable, that proper analysis isn't conducted more often. Many standard methods of contemporary archaeology must have seemed like science fiction a hundred years ago. And who even knows what lies beyond our horizon of understanding? Archaeology still strives to achieve a satisfactory level of non-intrusive excavation methods and non-destructive analysis. It is extremely self-conscious of its own shortcomings. If there is such a thing as an afterlife for archaeological data, where lost sources go when they die, then we must imagine that this place is stacked floor to ceiling with the collateral damage of past, present, and future excavatory carnage. I cannot tell you what this horrific place would look like, but I can tell you that it would have a well-stocked bar. Now, if you want to find archaeological traces of mead, what you want to be looking out for is A, plant pollen, and B, wax compounds that can never really be filtered out of honey. You can use gas chromatography to identify other chemical compounds as well, and it's helpful to identify beer. Otherwise, beer forms a hard substance called beer stone. And bearstone is visible to the naked eye. I'm sure once or twice in your life you've come across an old beer stain somewhere. Say you spilled a beer behind your couch and you just couldn't bother moving it to clean it up. And then one day when you've finally motivated yourself to properly clean the house or you want to move out, you move the couch 
and the fucking stain is right there, where it's been waiting for you for the last few months, smoking a fucking cigarette. It's still as sticky as it's ever been, but now it's also hard as a fucking rock. And if you don't remove it, it's just gonna stay there for the next thousand years until archaeologists find it and write down in their little excavation report that the person who inhabited this house was a drunk slob who enjoyed pastry stouts. Now that's a fate worse than death. Here's my question to you. Can you keep an open secret? That there might still be unanalyzed residues sitting around in a museum storage somewhere. That there might be descriptions of gunk-filled pots hidden in excavation reports here and there. That there might still be vessels hidden underground waiting for us to find them, to analyze them, to ascertain their contents, to take these ingredients and brew something of them, and then maybe just get a faint hint of the shadow of a primordial flavor profile, something that would have been more or less recognizable to people living a thousand years ago. We shouldn't be surprised that there are less famous examples. I am aware of at least three overlooked examples of likely beverage finds from the Iron Age of Norway, but I'm sure that these are not the only instances, whether recorded or unrecorded. Each of the instances I know come from the migration era, but I believe that only one was ever actually analyzed. If there are others, I would really like to know. <coughs> In Lilleböcke, in the county Hedmark, two glass beakers were recovered from a deposit within a dwelling, hence it has been interpreted ritually as a domestic sacrifice. One of the two beakers had gold pressed black ornaments in the form of the popular style one bird of prey motif depicting two intertwined raptors copied nine times around the rim. The base of the glass was decorated with a pressed band depicting grapevines, and three gold staves ran along the length of the glass and had a simple beaded design. The glass contained a black crust, and archaeologists reported finding remains of lingonberries in the glass. Chemical analysis fit the bill of a malted beverage containing berries. So this was, in essence, a fruit beer. Basing ourselves purely on stylistic criteria, the glass should stem from the last quarter of the 5th century. The other beaker was from the 4th century. So if each beaker was sacrificed when it was new and fashionable, we have about a hundred years of sacrificial continuity in this house. Residues have also been found in a typologically identical beaker from Hauge in Rogaland, as well as in two additional clay vessels from the same burial. The same applies to a glass drinking horn that was found in Skadberg, also in Rogaland but neither of these were ever analyzed as far as I know. As I was recording this very episode, news from the forefront of science and archeology span seemed to pop up all over the place. While there is no shortage of speculation regarding the symbolic function of booze in pre-Christian culture and religion, we have until now barely been scratching the surface of actually understanding the practicalities of prehistoric drinking culture from a production perspective. A clay beaker recently excavated near Esbjerg, Denmark, was found to have a runic inscription under its base. The inscription reads, Alu. Alu may have been the Proto-Norse predecessor to Old Norse Ol, or Ale, and occurs in many inscriptions dated to the Roman and Migration eras. Now, like the beaker at Lilleböcke, it is believed that this beaker, which was found in a place called, and I apologize in advance to all my Danish listeners, Ulvik. Ulvik? Okay, I will just say it in Norwegian, Uglvik, 
Uglvik. Okay, so the Uglvik beaker was uh, believed to have been a domestic sacrifice, just like the uh, beaker at Lillebørke. Doesn't say anything about its contents, but you know, you know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what it was. Might have been. <laughs> the fact that this is the first example of the term alu on a drinking vessel is significant because it is. Because it's the only one. There are no other examples so far that have anything obvious to do with drinking culture. For example, alu inscriptions are sometimes found on gold medallions, so-called bracteates, across the Germanic area. And there are, um, I believe, three uh, funerary urns from the early Anglo-Saxon period, uh, where the design is actually mirrored and stamped, so you can read alu in both directions. Quite fascinating, really. And... Um, Sometimes Proto-Norse alu is uh, translated along the lines of power or magic uh, based on cognates in other Germanic languages, chiefly Gothic, I believe. We cannot help but be reminded of the ale runes or allrunar of Sigurd Rivumal, the Eric poem that you are supposed to carve on the drinking vessel to protect you against the seat, as well as the back of your hand and the rune Naudr, the end rune, on your fingernail. There's a possibility that Old Norse all does not go back to alu, but aluv, which makes sense if you look at Finnish languages, which have uh, forms like olut, which is most certainly a Germanic loan. What we're talking about here is probably a so-called motif attraction sort of situation, where you have two things that are just kind of similar to each other, orbiting, hovering around each other, slowly drawing closer until BAM! They're the same. Nevertheless, the newly recovered beaker may provide an important missing link to our future understanding of beer and its status in the Nordic Iron Age. I did not read anything about residues in relation to the find. That would be very exciting, but of course, it's always too much to ask. But there is something else that is quite exciting. Apparently, microbiologists are now looking into the potential for even reviving ancient yeast strains recovered from archaeological contexts bringing the search for ancient ales and flavor profiles to a whole new necromantic level. I simply cannot overstate how important this would be to our understanding of ancient beer. Because at the end of the day, humans are not the ones who actually make the beer. The beer is made with the yeast. The yeast is the workhorse of the fermented beverage. We can only ease and herd it into an environment where it thrives. And it's kind of like you have a goat and you have a cow. And uh, through the winter, you, you feed them both more or less the same thing. And uh, at the end of the day, you can uh, uh, suck a little bit of milk out of their teats. Doesn't taste the same. You know, you got different organisms that create uh, different products. Uh, it's kind of like that with yeast, but not quite. I know it's a bit redundant because I already addressed this in the last episode. But I wanted to make the analogy. And I can tell that this subject is making me a lot more excited than I should be. Not in that way, but, you know, in terms of alcoholic fermentation, it's really exciting stuff. And that, I guess, leads us to our next segment. And that is the status of beer more widely in Old Norse society, how it was perceived, the importance it played in the culture, and there's absolutely no way I will be able to cover it all in one episode. That is just impossible. Besides, a lot of this stuff seems more relevant to an episode about, I don't know, drunkenness? There's a lot of good stuff that I'll save for the future. When we're talking about ancient Germanic and Iron Age Scandinavian history, we are talking about war bands with charismatic leaders that glued their retinue together 
using lavish luxuries, weapons, armor, textiles, and most importantly, maybe not on the battlefield, but in the feasting hall, certainly, which was 25% of the entire lifestyle, probably, luxurious food and drink. Not only did the drink serve to lubricate the Germanic war machine, but it probably also worked as a sacrament. And the sacrament of the drinking party probably doubled up as a group therapy session for the various traumas that these people inevitably experienced with their lifestyle. At least in part. This does not apply so much to beer, but alcohol more specifically. We can reach for the Byzantine Manual of War, known as the Strategicon of Maurice, where we are told that the Goths and the Franks and other Germanic peoples are efficiently demoralized if you cut off their supply to wine. I think that we can safely extend this analogy to other alcoholic beverages as well. That is, unless we assume that they were all wine snobs. This cannot all rely on ethnic stereotyping. It must rely at least somewhat on how Germanic armies were actually organized. And so this podcast necessitates some overlap between the function of beer specifically and attitudes towards other alcoholic beverages. There will always be some overlap. Take for example the Old Norse proverb, all es anar madr. Beer is another man. How wonderfully laconic. A perfect little Old Norse one-liner, just as we know and love them from the sagas. While beer was important in Norse culture, that's not to say that it wasn't completely unambiguous to them. Nor is it to us today. Think about it, alcoholic beverages are, in one sense, symbols of luxury and plenty, a social adhesive that can also, you know, break people apart. It may poison our bodies and cloud our minds, but also move us, fascinate us, inspire us. This dualism was not lost on Old Norse culture either. The Eric poem Hovamol, or the sayings of the High One, as it is often translated, the High One, of course, being the god Odin, cautions against unwise consumption of beer throughout the poem. I'm going to read the stanzas 11 through 12 for you right now. First in Old Norse with reconstructed pronunciation, and then roughly what it means in modern English. Birdi betri, ber at madr brautu at, ense man wit mikit, wegnest wera wegr ahan, welli at, ense ovdrikja ols. Ir a swogot sem got queda, ol aldasona. Thwi at fera wait er flera drekker sins til gedskomi. A better burden a man cannot carry than much wisdom. On his travels he'll find no worse provision than excess in beer drinking. It is not as good as good is called, ale to the sons of men. The less he knows, the more he drinks about his own mind. Beer was, of course, drunk on every proper occasion to the point where these feasts themselves are simply referred to as all or ales. And compound words with all as the suffix pay witness to the many occasions that the Old Norse culture celebrated. The Norwegian word for maternity, barsel, comes from Old Norse barnsol, meaning child's beer. But there are numerous other examples where the beer takes the front seat of the occasion. Skurdarol, which means harvest feast, 
Festarol, which is the betrothal feast, Samgongol, which is the wedding feast, Solol, which is the feast of the spirit of the deceased, and a whole ton of others. Drinking wasn't just for fun and games in Old Norse society. Drinking was very serious business, and the presence of beer was often demanded by the law for certain procedures to go on. Entertaining guests was a privilege of free individuals, and as you probably already know, early Old Norse society was partially a slave economy, and as far as Old Norse culture was concerned, there were two kinds of people living among them. There was the free and the unfree. Theoretically, slaves could be freed if their master allowed it, but there was a process involved. Because feasting life was so closely associated with the free in Old Norse society, it was only natural that a freed slave had to brew beer and hold a feast himself to symbolize their transition into free society. This ceremony was called Frelsisol, or Salvation Beer. This wasn't just window dressing, it was in fact the law. And the same famously applied to brewing beer for the holiday of Yule. Listen, it is not just because beer was an alcoholic beverage. Beer was a cultural symbol. It was a product that was produced on the farm. It was part of the local economy. There was no substitute for the traditional beer in these situations. It is obviously difficult to imagine an economically viable alternative, but the law does not state that you can swap the beer for wine or mead if you can afford it. No, beer is the cornerstone. This is terroir in its absolutely most profound sense. Not as a commodity that you can buy or sell, but as something that is made in your own home for family consumption. Whether in paganism or Christianity, the very brewing of the beer was a sacred occasion, a ritual, not in the temple or the church, but the sacred solemnity of your own home. And as often as they could, it would have come from the farm itself, from the soil that they themselves tilled. It's easy for me as a modern person to look romantically back and say, wow, that must have been so satisfying. But don't you think it was satisfying for the about-to-be-freed slave? To personally oversee the production of his own redemption beer, or even the house-proud farmers sitting down at Yuletide, ready to sample the Yule beer, having grown the grain, and then selected the finest grain for sowing for the next season, and then taken the second best for malting, made this malt brewed the beer, and now they're sitting with this bounty of the season in front of them, in the cold, sacred, yuletide holiday. You don't think that this would have been a moment of particular joy? Of respite from the harsh winter? You can bet your ass it would be. And beer might have been taken to market, shared among your pears, and displayed as a source of pride. Beer was drunk in pagan religious ceremonies, where libations were poured and toasts were drunk. But this sacred beer drinking did not in any way stop with the Christianization. The main opponent for that sort of practice was the decline of homebrewing and the Industrial Revolution, with the inclusion of the village doctor, who advised against the use of communal drinking vessels for hygienic reasons, which up until then had been used basically all the way back to the fucking, I don't know, Bronze Age, Neolithic since times immemorial. And that's actually one of the things that I miss about reenacting and doing living history, the the circle blute sort of things that people do on the Saturday evening where everybody's drinking from the same fucking drinking horn. And yeah, uh, I seem to have walked away from it unscathed. Um, 
But, you know, your imagination runs away with you in terms of the exotic diseases that may be or may not be on the lips of your fellow reenactors while you're officiating these uh, highly sacred occasions. Many such occasions came in the medieval era when Scandinavians also adopted the concept of guilds, which were common in many European countries at the time. Guilds must have been widespread and existed both in cities and the countryside. To the wider public, guilds were essentially just social clubs for people with similar social status, background, and interests to meet and carouse, usually with the alibi of praising God and to venerate the guild's patron saint. Such was the case for the farmers of the Olaf's Guild at Onarheim in West Norway, who met every year for the wake of St. Olaf, the so-called Eternal King of Norway. We might think that an organization that essentially revolved around drinking parties might have had a very lax attitude to rules and regulations. In fact, the opposite was true. The statutes of the Olaf's Guild from around 1300 shows across its 46 sections that guild life had quite a serial fraternal subtext that put guild members under many legal and social obligations, extending far beyond the guild hall and into daily life. It is all quite fascinating, but we will stick to the parts that relate to beer drinking right now. One thing that might interest a modern audience is the fact that the Olaf's Guild allowed members of either sex, though the role of the sisters is less clear than that of the brothers. The brothers and sisters of the guild were obviously forbidden from fighting, verbally or physically, at the guild, and a whole system of fines was in place to keep people in check for the sacred occasion. For example, if a man's dog or hawk enters the hall after the feasting tables have been put up, he is to pay three pennies. If they fail to witness the prayers of remembrance or the blessing of the drinking cups, they are to pay three pennies. If he spills more beer than he can cover with one hand, he is to pay three pennies. Likewise, if they fail to uh, take outside the beer that he has already consumed, that is to say, that he vomits in the hall, he is also to pay. Members were to meet seven nights in advance to deliver malt for the feast, which itself lasted several days. Approximately 10 kilograms of malt was demanded from every man, woman, and child above 12 years of age attending. If the child was younger, half the amount of malt. That implies, of course, that children also drank beer. This implication is made elsewhere in Norse literature as well, for example in Egil's saga, where the young child Egil Skallagrimsson is described as rather rowdy when he's drunk. I know in many urban European environments this would have been a necessity, but hardly so in the Nordic area, where people had plentiful access to running fresh water and consumed milk products to quench their thirst. It certainly seems to indicate that Old Norse society had a tolerance for children drinking alcohol. We don't really know the alcohol content of many of the beers that people drank, because volumes are usually indicated by the amount of malt, not the ratio of malt to water, so 10 kilograms of malt per person is quite a lot. As I mentioned, we don't really know anything more specific about the beer, but since this was a feast to last for several days, then they probably wanted it strong, but they also wanted a handsome quantity. If those 10 kilos, which are about 22 pounds, were turned into 6 gallons of beer per person, we're looking at an alcohol content somewhere in the ballpark of 10%. That's 48 pints of strong beer. Because the beer was brewed 7 days prior, it had scarcely a week to ferment, but that was probably not a huge problem to them. It is possible that the beer was still fizzing by the time they were getting toasted, and the beer was probably heavy and somewhat sweet, just like many farmers in later times would have liked it. According to later descriptions of farmhouse ales, beer could be brewed and consumed within just a couple of days, you know. 
And with all of this considered, I hope that I have given some justice to the subject of beer in Norse culture, bearing in mind that there is much to be elaborated upon, and that this is by no means a definitive guide to everything alcohol-related in Old Norse society. There are also other beverages, drinking games, and personalities and phenomenons to be tackled in countless future episodes to come. And now I want to be serious, just for a minute. It may seem easy, but every episode of the Brute Norse podcast takes weeks to research, record, and edit. It is an honor to delight you and provide for you, and I don't demand anything from you. But if you enjoy my content, please at least consider supporting me on Patreon forward slash Brute Norse or purchasing a shirt from the Teespring store, which you can find on BruteNorse.com. I want to make a few analogies. Imagine yourself, for example, as a lawyer handing out legal advice for free. Or imagine yourself as a taxi driver, but you're only getting paid on a donation basis. There's an ethical dilemma associated with this form of content creation, where information that was not free to begin with is given out and handed out free of charge. I am a normal person like you, working a normal, mundane, everyday job, and Brute Norse is only created on my free time. Furthermore, it does cost me money to actually do this. I don't want there to be any illusion about this. Because the thing is, bucko, unless your podcast is part of a huge podcast network or funded by some media channel, the person making the podcast probably isn't earning anything. In fact, they're wasting weeks of their time so that you can enjoy 30 minutes of a podcast. So please, for the betterment of the world, if you're not going to chuck a dollar at me, please chuck a dollar at somebody else who you think deserves that money, who deserves a pat on the back for the content that they are creating. And if not that, go to a show, pay full entry to a f***ing museum, buy our f***ing groceries from the f***ing farmer's market, buy a f***ing book from a f***ing independent publisher, at least do f***ing something. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's two ways. One is walking straight off the cliff, and one is walking backwards into the future.